Welcome to the Pan-African Cinema Podcast, the official podcast of the Gian Giovanni Pan-African Cinema Archive. This episode is part of our event series podcasts, which showcase the various public screenings, workshops and talks which our team puts on. Using the archive as a springboard for wider discussion, these podcasts explore histories and interrelationships between African and African diasporic film culture. To find out more about our work and receive up-to-date news on upcoming events and projects, please do follow the links in the show description and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. What does the 1958 riots mean to you? It meant that it was the sign of things to come. Okay. Um, it showed that people could be misled or be misguided and would be willing to, um, if you like, physically attack people for the, for the colour of their skin. Today's episode takes us back to November 2023, when we hosted a screening of Imri Bakari's film, Riots and Rumours of Riots. We were lucky enough to hold a discussion with Imri afterwards, about the process of making the film and also hear a selection of his poetry. Enjoy. It was around the time that Channel 4 was coming into being and black independent film was beginning to claim its space within the industry. The Black Film Workshops were set up <coughs> between 1983 and 1993 and the Cheddo Film Workshop officially set up uh, in 1993 by the Kumba production film, filmmakers together with others uh, dynamic talents such as Dennis Elmina Davis and others um, many of you will also know him as a highly articulate sharer of knowledge in the field of art and culture at the University of Winchester but many of you may not know is uh, his creative writing and poetry, which you may well have the pleasure and the luck to discover this evening. His artistry, culture and politics is infused throughout or based on ideas of Pan-Africanism. And although he was born in St. Kitts in the Caribbean and has lived in the UK for many decades, he has also lived and worked in East Africa notably Tanzania, where he taught and produced films with local filmmakers, and where in Zanzibar he was director of the uh, Festival of the Dow Countries Film Festival um, for three years. <clears throat> We've known each other for many decades, four actually, <laughs> um, and our interest in and concerns for Pan-African cinema across four continents is part of what has led our paths and interests to cross. Imra is one of the people that I admire greatly and who has been very supportive of the significance and importance of archives. And I'm very grateful that our interests, together with those of a number of colleagues and artists in the sector, have crossed and led to our collaboration around the J.G. Packer archive um, uh, who are hosting tonight's event. Imra is one of the co-directors along with myself and uh, Dr. Emma Sandon. Some of you will know 
and will have seen the Perang show that was held at Raven Row Gallery earlier this year. And we're in the process of building the foundation uh, and uh, a foundation um, for, for the archive. And that process is involving working with new, young and inspiring talents, three of whom, Damilola Lemomu, <laughs> um, uh, Phoebe Beckett Chingono, where is she? Oh, there she is. Um, and Benjin Pollock, <laughs> over there, who have joined JG Packer recently and who have organised tonight's event, and we thank them most sincerely. And I must say a word of thanks to Maiden Rooms, um, our hosts, landlord, institutional partners, for their support, um, and with whom we are collaborating on a number of events in the coming year via the Uncovering the Archives event series for young people. So watch the space. Um, I will let Lamia say, say a few words if she will. Um, this is Lamia. Hi, I'm Lamia. I am part of the Mayday Rooms Collective. Um, thank you, June. It's um, one of the things that uh, Mayday Rooms and I think archives um, across London are maybe thinking about more is how to broaden archival engagement. Um, I think there's very much a, I think we see this turn to archives and people seeing not only the importance of um, looking at history through them, but also um, uh, archiving, kind of learning to archive their own work, struggles, um, lives, and so on. So we're collaborating with June and JG Parker to run a series of workshops um, aimed at young people um, to give them an introduction not only to the specificity and, and importance of June's archive, but to kind of um, approach the archive through, I guess, moving image. So this is something that is very much a pilot, um, kind of trying to make archives less intimidating um, and boring for a younger crowd. So if this is something that slash anyone you know might benefit from, um, there'll be uh, more promotion of that in the in the coming year. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, uh, I'll pass over to Dami, who's going to introduce So this evening we will be screening Riots and Rumours of Riots. This was Imru Bakari's graduation film at the National Film and Television School. Riots and Rumours of Riots explores the history of immigration from the Caribbean to the UK, from the Second World War, right up until the Notting Hill Riots of 1958. <coughs> it utilises an array of archive material. The film highlights the significant contribution and older generation of black people played in British history, which gave rise to early forms of radical black politics in the UK. After the screening, Imru will also be reading um, a few of his poems from um, Without Passport or Apology and Madman in the House. Um, both of these were published by Smokestack Books. Without Passport or Apology 
was published in 2017, and it looks at emigration and immigration, racism and resistance, slavery and freedom. Drawing on 30 years of working as a filmmaker in the Caribbean, Europe and Africa, Imru addresses head-on the experience of African-Caribbean migration for himself and for the millions who constitute the African diaspora around the world. It's a book about places, Haiti, Rwanda, Sierra Leone, Liberia and Tanzania, and it's also a book about people. Marcus Garvey, Aubrey Williams, Stuart Hall, Louis Farrakhan, Martin Carter, Shaka Shaka Keen um, and Courtney Pine. Um, The Madman in This House, this was published in 2021, and this is Imru's fourth collection. The Madman in This House is about resistance to colonialism in the 21st century, and it begins with the story of Negro of the Banyols, whose stuffed remains were displayed in European museums for nearly 170 years, and ends up celebrating the life and music of Jamaican jazz musician Coleridge Good. The collection explores the histories, geographies, and the ironic impossibility of being black in our time. From Grenfell, Guantanamo, and Gaza, to the monsters and empire of neoliberalism selling their tar baby promises of freedom. Um, Yeah, I guess we can play the film now and then we'll have. Oh, yeah. Imru, would you like to say anything? Yes, Yes? okay, great. Thank you for inviting me yeah, to my own film. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm very happy that these young people, as we say, are taking this initiative because that's really what the archive is about. Um, we have, we'll have a discussion after. Um, if I was, this film was made in 1981. And uh, if I was introducing it then, or when I did introduce it then, I would talk about the generation gap, you know, the difference between parents and their children who were then rioting in 1980-81. Because as I was editing this film, Brixton was literally burning. And they had already experienced the 1958-59 riots in Nottingham and Notting Hill, London. Introducing it today, I really have to contextualize it in relation to colonialism. This is the era that allows us, for me, to understand where we are at this moment. Um, Not only what's happening in the northeastern part of Africa, which people call the Middle East, but also what's happening in Britain. Shula Breverman, Boris Johnson, David Lamy, um, James, not so cleverly. <laughs> um, you can't understand these people unless you understand colonialism, as far as I'm concerned. And therefore, the whole question of how the British state has reinvented the colonial apparatus to manage Britain and manage the black people and its diasporic communities is really how I would introduce this film. Um, so yeah, we'll discuss it after, and um, that's for me the relevance of it today, really. Thank you. You are listening to the Pan-African Cinema Podcast, the official home of the June Jabani Pan-African Cinema Archive. Please share, subscribe, and leave a review of our work, and you can support us through donations via our very own Patreon account. 
Find all links in the show description. now the elder generation of the Caribbean community in Britain. Looking back, their experience from the war to the death of Kelso Cochrane in 1959 was an indication of what was yet to come. There is official bewilderment as to how a riot on this scale occurred. For nearly six hours last night, police struggled to retain control of Brixton's decaying streets. I hope the film provided some um, reflection. Let me just say, um, of course, it's a film school film. It's one of the reasons, when you went to the National Film School, you had to have an idea of what you're going to do. Um, it was a school, it is a school, was the only, well, professional school that was government funded. There was one other film school in London, the London Film School, which you had to pay privately to do. But it was set up by a man called Colin Young, and I think that's important because he's the link between myself and people like Haile Gerima. Colin Young also set up the UCLA Film School with all the new Hollywood directors. He's a Scottish man, was working in America for a long time, and decided to come back here and model something based on the UCLA Film School. So it was a very inspiring and professionally driven film school. They weren't just looking for um, good filmmakers. They wanted individual voices, individuals. My friend Iman, who just left, she had to go somewhere else. Her father from Sudan was in his final year when I started. And that's how I've met her because we're trying to restore her father's films. Howard Johnson was also there. He was the year before me, the late Howard Johnson. There were not many black filmmakers. Um, but you can see the names, filmmakers from all over the world, Latin America, etc., etc. And, well, we'll talk about the film and how I, things are made about it. But let me read one or two poems. Um, in keeping with the themes of the theme of the film, I want to read a poem that I wrote in the 1970s. <coughs> and um, it was published in the first thing I ever got published in 1980, 80, yes, by Karnak House. A publication called Sounds and Echoes. And um, some of those poems I hope I can republish at some point. But, Saba Sakana was the, yeah. Um, this, film, this poem is called The Traveler. And I've played with it a little bit over the years. Of course, it was written in the mid-70s. And um, I read it recently and thought, oh, I like this kind of stuff, you know. But it, 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 it responds to the first two poems I'm going to read. Uh, celebrate the kind of resilience of that older generation. I, I don't call them Windrush generation, older generation. I celebrate their resilience um, because that's what's important. Um, that's what's important because they didn't come here to, to be victims. They came here with a purpose. And they didn't come here to build Britain. 
they came here to survive colonialism. And that's a very important for me distinction. The traveler. Down the hill she moved in her own time with rhythmic precision. Down the hill she moved a Dahomey woman caught in the fire of a mating dance. But her neck, with rigid veins protruding, betrayed her primal urge and stretched with the weight of the shopping basket balancing on her head. Eyes half closed, Lips firmly together, face drawn tight like weathered rock, her two hands weighed down with more shopping, stretching her whole body as if possessed by a tormenting rage. She was on her way. She was on her way home. And that's based on an image I did see in Britain, a woman carrying as they do in the Caribbean and Africa, a load on her head. Women carry babies on their back. I've seen that in Britain before Mother Care invented all these contraptions they have these days. <laughs> the other poem is, um, the title of it is Pasero. Now, I grew up in St. Kitts and um, Pasero, is a term associated with people as a young boy I used to admire. They wore two-tone shoes, they had gold teeth, they had chains, <coughs> and they had traveled. Either to Florida, but particularly to places like Santo Domingo, Cuba, Panama, etc. And they would return, and they would greet each other with the term pasero, which is a I've discovered a sort of English, Anglicized, Caribbeanized uh, word, or a Spanish word meaning dude or fam. You know, you've heard fam? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so they would meet in the street with their gold teeth and they would, pasero, you know, and they would greet each other. And they would usually smoke cigarettes of various kinds. <laughs> I wanted to be like them, but my grandmother never allowed me to go very far. Uh, Pasero, and this is from Without Passport or Apology. All that separated him from the grimy streets outside was a dirty window glass. No one saw his face, the fire and the blood surging from his navel to sustain sanity. Yet strangers usually ask questions. Are you from Timbuktu? Without a sense of knowing that the name was real and he would want to say yes, but usually shrugged his shoulders to avoid forensic surgery. Survival is a game of protecting pearls from swine. He walks with measured rhythm between places, felt hat tips slightly to one side, alert and knowing the solid texture, tempered with a long journey of exile. His leather shoes built to outlive human frailty, his suit hangs as it would on a younger man. A brittle frame 
wrapped in tailored elegance now, possessing a breast pocket loaded with a gold watch, ticking away to the next stop beyond the grave. Getting old as a hustler in London is not easy. Uh, yes, on the same theme, this is a poem I dedicated to a younger man, Courtney Pine. Uh, you probably have no doubt know his, his music. And um, he has an album called House of Legends. And I wrote this poem and used the title. Um, yeah. Head held high above this pirate's throne, this barren river of glass beads and broken mirrors. Here lies the clay pot handed down after the storm. All litanies expire to inspire the incendiary melodies of an Atlantic sea turtle. No regrets. Home is heaven carried with ease and grace to anchor always near the confluence of rivers and trade winds. Feet firmly flat across this no man's land, the acrobat with locked jaw and club foot is surfing in the twilight without passport or apology in spiral flight. The skylark rides the waves as always, resisting the force feeding, the empire inbreeding and the vulgar Lord, what a Saturday night feeling to reside above the borders, the boundaries, and the ball and chain. Breath, bold, folding over. The carpet goat skin, the rocking chair of sorrel petals shaped for comfort in the dry season. Here songs are sealed to furnish every room. The other stories must be told. Always, once upon a time, a journey to where the urge within must feed and memory is made from a web of razor grass when speaking in whispers or whistling the mystery of salt. And in corridors where snow-filled tears have sat entombed in paraffin fumes, there is always in the ebb and the flow, there is always a slant, a style, a swing. Time, tall, eternal, outstretched. The impossible is conquered. Calling, healing, calling, healing in the eye of the creator. Here, the welcome mat in place takes a chorus to the bridge. That was from um, Without Passport or Apology, and you know one of the lines from that poem became the title of that book, um, become the title of that collection. I want to read some two, one or two from the madman in this house, which is 
came out in 221. And um, yes, okay. I think I should read the Grenfell poem. It's called The Grenfell Tower Murderer. You've heard of Grenfell Tower. <coughs> this is the Grenfell Tower Murderer, which is still unsolved and will remain unsolved until it gets into the archives and archives somewhere <laughs> in the next hundred years. The Grenfell Tower Murderer. Somewhere behind a door safe and sure. Somewhere behind a fridge clad in comfort. At number 16 on the fourth floor, the murderer laid a plan. Hand in hand, a chain of beneficiaries, upright and without risk, managed the standards designed to tinsel strut the strong and stable appearances that matter. When scorched voices sounded the alarm, a common language fought the raging flames and smoke signs. The clear orders in English that answered the unopened council chambers, the overflowing closet files, inked in social cleansing. Symbolism is everything in politics. Nothing signifies like the significant. The murderer took the heat outside to taunt and tease as smoke offered a blanket to dry eyes and mouths paralyzed between floors, wishing to speak, to be heard, to live a little more than foreign fingerprints trapped by the betrayal of a gaping door. The royal bar has gone red. Tears and time will count the dead. The murderer is prepared. There is snake oil in the scheme of things masked in leopard skin. Clothed wolves tagged to privilege serve up parables in procession as ventilation for deprivation. An austerity raising public school buffoons a cut above the rest. New architects linger in the backdraft. Voices keep the still alight in alabaster black and epitaph to those who could not find refuge in half-baked media cladding, speak clearly or speak back. A waterfall of corpses finds meaning in the searching anger rescued from trampled footsteps. The murderer mingles in the miscounting of the deeds official and unofficial, suspects left casual and ballpark. The murderer mingles in between the margins of profit. Somewhere behind an unapologetic anti-migrant march. Somewhere behind flowers clutched in sacred memory. And I'm going to read just two more and then sit down. And 
One is inspired to read it. It's um, Mandikizela Mandela. Um, that is, of course, Winnie Mandela. And I witnessed on TV, on live stream, the full. I don't usually do this. I don't need to attend funerals and stuff like that. But I found some kind of impulse to sit through the funeral as it was happening in South Africa on a live stream to reflect on those who were present, those who made speeches, and those who said what they needed to say for the occasion, <laughs> as they usually do on those occasions. And this poem was written after that um, event, in fact. In fact, it was about five hours or six hours, you know. So that was me in London one, I don't know, whatever day it was. Mandikizela Mandela. You have grown to know the stadium, the mixing and the mingling mixed up in the rainbow and the toxic rain. You have grown to know the colors dressed in combat camouflage where Sechaba promises wait to be delivered. When the nation wakes to rise and walk in your footsteps, the pillars bearing the weight of tears that surf you home will bloom from the bird songs you have crafted with messages wrapped and woven into ageless backbones, tutoring timeless hands. <coughs> you have grown and you have shown the way is a bold distance beyond the bold bartering and the business as usual. You have grown and you have taken the world strides further into a distance beyond false dawns, cradling headless chicken skins. You have grown as the wellspring in the African ocean, a winged voice in the river of Abantu eternal in the air and the life within its heart. The last poem, and it has a lot to do with the current situation. I have a few poems in this book about Palestine, the Palestinian situation, which I hope I share with you the solidarity of that. And I'm not going to condemn Hamas because I'm not in Gaza. And if I condemn Hamas, I condemn every African who has risen up over 500 years to help African people be free from slavery and other oppressions. I make no apologies for that. In fact, there's an Israeli on my film. We were co-students. I hope he's on the right side of history. That's all I can say. <laughs> but I wrote this poem on the 22nd of October. And um, yeah, the 22nd of October. It's called Gaza, a work of progress. Gaza, 
a work of progress. Mein Kampf can be bought on eBay. It will arrive in everydayness with signature delivery, annotation revised for the work. It will arrive with vouchered loyalty, mobilized against the menace. This blueprint plan for nation sanitation can be franchised for the birth of a homeland to be serialized between the shattered silences of eardrums. This blueprint plan for land chosen will arrive at tank top destination, gift wrapped in tabloid editions with settler anointment for a police auction price. Mein Kampf can be bought it has come of age. From eBay, it will arrive. With dead salt voices fiddling delivery between the lines. It will arrive baked with blood pushed through any crevice of your choice. Thank you. I think I should sit down. You allow me to sit down. Okay. Okay, so um, just delving straight back into the film, the kind of opening question was you asking um, someone what the riots meant to them of that time. Um, I'd like to pose that same question to you, that you making this film, looking back, on the Notting Hill riots whilst there were uprisings going on all over the UK. Um, what did making this film and what did the riots at that time mean to you? Well, oh, interesting. As I said, when I was, you know, did my interview to go into the film school and the acts, they usually said to you, what is the film you want to make if you're going to die tomorrow? You know, what is the film you want to make that gives you a passion to come here and do something? And I kind of pitched this. I'm not sure what I said, but I knew I was going to make this film. One, because one, the media was not as it is today in Britain. Black people were very marginalized within the media. We've been celebrating Horace Ove. Horace Ove's film Pressure was banned. The people don't realize that by the, the, the British Film Institute. Withheld for about two years because they said what was on the screen was not real. So all this BFI celebration of Horace Hovey for me is a lot of crap, basically. They don't tell the truth about how, what he actually did. But that had happened. There was also another film called Black's Britannica, which was banned. It was made with um, public, service, public service TV in America about the black condition here with the BBC, and the BBC refused to show it. Uh, I think that is correct. Somebody can correct me again. But that's generally the attitude. So black people were not seen on television in any um, position that would be beyond entertainment. Some of it credible, credible others downright um, insulting. Lenny Henry, for example, he caused black people a lot of pain and a lot of insults. And he should be ashamed of himself. But he's been rewarded for it. Anyway. 
Um, but also, I had been aware that in the 1970s, you see in the film we feature the Saturday School. That was a very important movement in black communities. And um, there was also the Sasslots, young black people being picked up on the street, under suspicion about something, crime they would commit in the future. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and a lot of them got criminalized for that. But we saw how the social services, or I observed, how the social services in this country had organized itself to divide parents from children. The children were being told that they are British, their, their parents are old-fashioned, you should, don't worry with them, we, you are British, you know how to do things. Your, your parents are too strict, and all that kind of nonsense. So I'd seen that. And um, I just really want, as the riots came out of that kind of frustration, and the youths then found themselves literally on their own, um, I found it necessary to remind them that what they were going through, their parents had been through that already. They had made sacrifices to go to work and avoid jail so that they could go to school or try to go to school. So I really wanted to make that point of reconciliation, but at the same time, chart in some way the impact that black people had made in British society. Um, and I asked this question before going to talk about the making making of mm. the film, but you said the impacts that black people have made in Britain, um, and you mentioned um, the W word, Windrush. Um, so the impact that black people have made in Britain, and we look at it from starting from that period, um, how can you link riots, if we were speaking about riots, from like the 20s and um, connecting that to the 50s of those people at that time as well? Well, it's interesting you mentioned the 20s because there have been riots in 1919. Mm -hmm. Black people were attacked on the streets in Liverpool, in Cardiff, in London, killed, and there were riots. Why? A lot of them had been servicemen in the First World War. Mm -hmm. So what we have here is, um, and I mentioned colonialism, the way colonialism precipitates migration to the metropolis. Mm -hmm. And then in the metropolis, racism becomes a mechanism for suppressing and controlling that population, having taken their wealth, because that's what colonialism is supposed to do, extract the bauxite, extract the oil, but it also extracts the people, and this is what I tried to, to suggest. Mm -hmm. um, so throughout the 20th century, in Liverpool, in all where there were black communities, there were riots. North Shields, in the north of England, crazy places like that, you know. Um, so riots were not unique to Britain or to black people. There were other riots as well. There were riots, anti-Jewish riots, in this country, in the East End. Jews were hunted in the East End in this country. And they don't tell you that, right? Um, so the whole point was to just see it for what it is. The ways in which British society manages its undesirables, in inverted commas. Yeah. And then going to the making of this film mm -hmm. and the sourcing of um, the archive footage, I was really intrigued by that because um, when I was studying at Goldsmiths and I made an archive film, it was a lot easier. I'm guessing it was a lot, a bit easier to make because of 
I knew where to kind of go to. Making this film at this time, um, how did you source your footage? Well, <laughs> well, of course, there were always the archives, the, the film archives. The BBC has always had a film archive, Pathé News, etc. But then um, I spoke to a lot of people. I spoke to contemporaries of Claudia Jones. There's a guy who's passed away now, Donald Hines, his name is there was very helpful in giving me copies of the West Indian Gazette, allowing me to photocopy them, etc. He was a student of Claudia Jones, basically. Billy Strachan, ex-serviceman, Labour, Caribbean Labour Congress um, leader, etc. He had a lot of documents and we sat and he just talked to me for hours. The guy who you see in the film, Clem Byfield, was an ex-serviceman. He lived in Finchley somewhere. Kilburn. I spent a lot of time with him. But you also see there are a lot of voices in the film that you don't see. And of course, it's a student film. <laughs> it's shot on 16 millimeter. So I did a lot of interviews, just audio. Mm -hmm. And um, really, if I was doing it with you know, a meaningful budget, it would have been an hour, and you'd have seen those faces. But what the idea was to have a variety of voices, both from Nottingham and London, speaking authoritatively. And that for me was very important. They were not explaining or asking to be accepted. They were speaking with authority. And this is one of the tricks of the media, which is why you don't see Palestinians in the news, because they don't want them to speak with authority. And that has always been my project as a filmmaker, that whatever I do, you must speak with authority. And who wants to accept it, accept it. Who don't want to accept it, that's their business. I'm not here to prove anything to anybody. I'm not here to ask anybody to agree with me. I'm not running for office. I don't care. <laughs> you know. But you speak with authority, and this is what you don't get black people doing in the media. You get them explaining themselves or begging to be understood. I'm going to tell you what my story is. You accept it, you don't. And that has been my approach to, to life <laughs> and filmmaking. Yeah. And then coming back to, um, like you said, having the space to be able to... Well, yes, it was an yeah. interesting space. And I, in fact, reflecting on it now, it helped me to contribute to Cheddar. Mm -hmm. Because, yes, it was a space, but I was more or less left on my own. You know, I was given an editing room when I was ready. And, I mean, I'd worked on a number of student films. I've done, you know, all the other stuff. But when it comes to making my film, you go off and do it. When you finish it, come back. Now, that, was, that had a benefit, but it was not what I would have wanted in an ideal world. Because any new filmmaker needs to be supported. And therefore, when we started Shadow, Part of it was that we're just going to give people money and say, go off and make a film. Can we say what Cheddar is, just in case? Cheddar Film and Video Workshop, which we began in 19... Well, we began talking about it because of the, the way Channel 4 had changed the media environment. But it was officially set up as a franchised workshop. Menlik Shabazz was involved as another filmmaker. Henry Martin was you know, peripherally involved. But there was a, it was a collective, and out of that came a number of people, including D.L. Mina Davis, who had never made a film before. 
and she wanted to make a film about the Rastafarian women. And I just said to her, yes, we're going to get you to do it. And I got the best people possible to surround her so she can make the film. Albert Bailey, Philip Chavan, myself. And we said, look, we're going to give you the best images. We don't want you to make mistakes. That's the problem. You don't learn by mistakes. You die by mistakes. You know, what you do is give people the support and you say, you suggest to them the best way to do things so they can realize their potential. And the film school taught me that that was important. Um, I had a lot of resources, limited budget, of course, but I had a lot of 16 millimeter film, which is why you're seeing this is a copy onto a video format. We are trying to hopefully restore it um, so you can get a better quality, digital quality. But yeah, I mean, the film school for me was very valuable. Um, but I learned that, you know, in Hollywood they don't do that. Steven Spielberg is great because he got the best people around him and Hollywood supported him to make him great. You don't just become great. You have to be nurtured. And that is an approach to filmmaking, passing on information that I guess I've taken because of that. And um, the importance of like workshop movements like Cheddo, um, we've got in this room over here, we've collected a bit of archival material that we think um, will really help to contextualise um, kind of the workshop movement, but also kind of riots that were taking place um, in the 80s, 50s and, and the 20s as well. But it's not only the riots, because you t you're yeah. talking about the, the research, because mm -hmm. I did a lot of work, research in the, the War Museum. I did a lot of work in the, in the newspaper library, it used to be in Collindale, right? And again, the oral history recordings. And I had been sort of familiar with that approach from the early 70s. Um, I, you know, I'd been, you know, kind of vaguely connected with some organizations in, in, in Ruskin College and so on who were doing that kind of work. I thought, oh, this is an interesting technique, getting ordinary people to tell their stories, you know? Um, but I spent a lot of time in the War Museum. Um, and I spent a lot of time um, in the newspaper library. So the thing then was to, how do you pull all of that together within the limited res time res as a resource to make a film, which is why it's 33 minutes, which means it's not a television half an hour as it were. It's either gotta be 52 or 25 or something like that. I just made a film I wanted to make with anything, everything I had at the time. Yeah, so that was it. I've got one last question before I open it up to everyone else to ask questions. Is um, um, so you work across different practices. We've heard some of your poetry. We've um, watched this film. You write and you teach. Um, a common theme that I see coming up in your work is different modes of resistance and exploring that in in various forms, whether that is it's colonialism and everything links to that. Um, via being in Cuba, it might be in Haiti or here um, in Britain. Um, what does it mean to you? How does that impact your practice um, resistance? Oh, well, first of all, I like cinema. Mm -hmm. Secondly, or double first, I like poetry. I read a lot of poetry. I read a lot of poetry in translation, which interests me the way other languages gets translated into English. 
you know, and when I lived in Tanzania, I spent a lot of time studying, you know, the format and the, of Swahili poetry and the music, Tarab music and its poetry and understanding the syntactical structures and so on and realizing this is how I probably wanted to write English as a foreign language kind of stuff. So I like poetry, I like literature, I like cinema. And that's my starting point, <laughs> right? The resistance issue is not so much resistance, it's about affirmation. Um, I don't set out to resist, I set out to make a print, a footprint, and assert a presence. And this is what I think the reviews of the time were a little bit disconcerted by this film because they thought these people are speaking so confidently, they're not angry. They don't sound angry, but you know, when we listen to what they're saying, it's quite serious, you know. Um, so yes, for me it's about affirmation. And um, so the resistance comes out of that, the notion of resistance, because you can't just resist something, you've got to stand for something. You've got to believe in something, you've got to establish something. Um, so it's about affirming a presence, whether it's individual or pan-African, it should always be beyond yourself, because you are nothing, basically. You know, it's really about everything else. Um, and that's what's interesting. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made possible with the support of the Freelance Foundation and was a JG Packer production. Please subscribe and you can support our ongoing work through our Patreon account. Follow us at June Giovanni Film Archive and find out more about the work the Archive does at junegiovannifilmarchive.org. If you would like to visit us at the Archive, please do email info at junegiovannifilmarchive.org and find all further information in the programme description.